welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. This is Josh Rosenblum. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident at Emory University uh, with Vino Thorani uh, for the TSRA podcast on the history of TAVR. Uh, Dr. Thorani is a professor of surgery at Emory Hospital and the co-director of the Structural Heart and Valve Center. He was also the co-PI of the partner trials uh, of the Edward Sapien Valve. Uh, welcome, Dr. Thorani. Thank you so much, Josh, for uh, having me and also the TSRA. So. The purpose of this podcast is mostly to talk about the history of TAVR, how it became, uh, and where we're going in the future. Can you tell me a little bit about how uh, transcatheter valve options came about? Um, Was this a physician or patient-driven idea, uh, and what were the first steps to developing uh, transcatheter aortic valves? Yeah, so um, it was really uh, physician-driven. And um, in Europe uh, mainly, and so this was um, uh, thought of uh, by some engineers who then took it to a guy named Alain Cribier, and Alain Cribier really um, is a French cardiologist who, um, in a patient uh, who had who was very well known for balloon valvuloplasty, aortic valvuloplasty, who then uh, worked with the engineers and other physicians at a startup company, and at that point were able to go ahead and implant it in a human being. Uh, in 2002 in uh, Rouen, uh, France. And that patient actually did remarkably well. And at that time, what they were able to do is they actually went transeptal. So they went through the femoral vein, transeptal, and it was a very difficult procedure to, uh, to perform. However, with, the, uh, with a guy named John Webb, who's a cardiologist in Vancouver, with Martin Leon, uh, who's a cardiologist at Columbia University, and Alain Cribier, those three really started spearheading the pathway of how to do transcatheter valve therapy, transfemorally. And they switched uh, from the transeptal to directly through the femoral artery. And that really, um, and that's called the retrograde approach because you're coming against the flow of the aortic valve. And so that really started the process for uh, transcatheter valve therapies transfemorally. In Germany, uh, a guy named Thomas Walter, who was a disciple of Frederick Moore, started the whole platform of transapical valve therapy. And that was in conjunction with Michael Mack in Dallas and also uh, Todd Dewey in Dallas at that time. So that was really the evolution of transapical valve therapy. So working in tandem uh, with mainly the Europeans because they have no FDA, that was really where it started. Um, At that time, the very first valve was a balloon expandable valve and it was the company, the startup company was bought by Edwards Life Sciences, which led to the development of the Sapien valve. And from there really is the evolution that everybody knows of so far. So Partner One was published in 2011 and FDA gave approval for the Sapien valve for high-risk patients. What were the biggest hurdles to overcome FDA approval you had mentioned the first valve was implanted in Europe in 2002, so that's a uh, nine years gap. Um, what was the biggest hurdle with the FDA and, and device development here in the States? So when you have such a disruptive technology, which completely changes the way a procedure is done, specifically leaving the calcium there, as you and I know, um, you remove the calcium and kind of that pathway that we've always followed and been taught, 
That was such a disruptive technology that the FDA would not use the European data to uh, perform these valves in the United States. Not only that, the FDA insisted that they be extremely high-risk or extreme-risk patients. On top of that, they insisted a heart team approach, which was not done in Europe. And so um, the, or was less likely to be done in, in, in Europe. So we had surgeons and cardiologists equally represented on the partner studies and consequently the, the Medtronic core valve studies um, where there was a good adjudication in extreme risk patients and high risk patients. And that's really where it all started. It took us a while. I was on almost all the conference calls twice weekly starting from 2007 um, to that time period. And it was very intense discussions on who should get the valve and who should not. Um, and who would survive a year, who would not survive a year. So it was a, it was a, um, a very challenging time. And quite honestly, at that time, the sheath, the femoral sheath was so large in the 28, 24 to 28 French size that about 50%, 55% of the cases were done transfemorally, roughly 45% of the patients were done transapically. So there was a lot more surgeon involvement because it was an open procedure. And there was a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with it because we were learning for the first time how to do stuff. So like you said, initially, the transfemoral approach was maybe half of the delivery, uh, whereas now with Sapien 3, it's now 90% or more transfemoral. That's right. Do you think as the devices developed, there was a coincident development in the delivery system versus the actual valves themselves and the technology? Was that um, coordinated development? or what was the biggest development during that time? So the major complications that we had from partner one uh, and also the core valve trials that came uh, consequently thereafter were we had significant paravalvular leak. And so we were leaving the patients with up to 20 to 30% chance of a moderate leak, moderate severe leak. We knew that that was bad for the patient. So there was one heavy development and this has to go a lot to credit of industry listening to physicians for the device iterations that we wanted something that would decrease our, our, our pair valve leak, and that led to the Sapien 3 valve. Um, we also thought that the 24, 28 French sheets were too large, and we wanted more patients being done transfemorally, because as we all know, a needle stick in the groin is a lot uh, less traumatic to a patient than a thoracotomy in an 88-year-old. Um, and so there was device iterations done uh, and sheath delivery uh, iterations done that went from 24, 28 French sheets all the way down to 14 French sheets and 16 French sheets. And that's the same for Medtronic and the uh, Edwards valve platforms, the, the two most commonly used valves. And so again, it was physician um, input that was um, pushing industry to move faster. So if you think about it, in the span of seven years, we've had major valve evolution in iterations that have led to 90% of the patients being done transfemorally with no cut down. Where if you think about in surgical technology, we haven't had a major change in our surgical valves over that seven to nine year time period. So it's been quite rapid and explosive how the movement and disruptive on how the movement has occurred for this. Right. Um, so that being said, where do you see the future of TAVR going? specifically with delivery systems. I know now a lot of the work's being done using femoral venous access with uh, transcable approaches. Do you feel that in the future, everyone is gonna be a sort of non-surgical percutaneous access candidate? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think there are two things that are gonna develop for the future of TAVR. 
One, the indications are going to change. Um, right now, in the USA, um, two valves are approved for extreme risk patients, the uh, core valve Evolute and the Sapien 3 valve. Those same two valves are, uh, are approved for high-risk patients. That's a STS greater than eight. Now we have the Sapien 3 valve approved for an STS greater than three. So intermediate risk patients, I think, over the next couple of years will go towards transcatheter valve therapy. The low, there are two low-risk trials going on in the United States in October of 2016. When those, within the next five years, that, that's, those studies are gonna have 10-year follow-up, by the way. But within the next five years, there's a good chance those are gonna be approved, we think, we don't know. If that occurs, then I think that anybody who is a candidate for tissue valve, I think the patients will most likely choose a transcatheter valve therapy. Um, the second thing that's gonna change, in my opinion, is that transapical and transaortic will go by the wayside. I think that there will be, um, the reason is, is because now we've done 30 transcables, like you mentioned, it's a transfemoral stick, patients go home the next day. Um, we're, people are doing transubclavians quite a bit now. Um, I know a lot of institutions have switched away from TA or TAO and gone to transubclavian. The one that we just did went home in post-update two with no chest tube, and it looks great. He was 88 years old. So I think that those are the pathways that are going to go for the future. So, so <clears throat> you're predicting the extinction of surgical aortic valve replacement. What patients is surgical residence now um, while getting involved with TAVR, the concern is obviously that interventionalists can take this over when it becomes just a needle stick for everybody. Yeah. What patients are getting surgical aortic valve replacement now? So that's a great question. I think that my plea has been, and the way my practice has developed, is that I do both open surgical valves and transfemoral and transapical and transubclavian. I think that's what we need to create is that breed of surgeons that can do a transfermal in the morning in the cath lab and then can go downstairs and do an open AVR. Those patients that I think are still gonna need open AVRs are those that have too large of an annulus, those that have root aneurysms, uh, root replacements, those that have bicuspid valves, the true fish mouth bicuspid valves, um, those that are redo AVRs uh, that have a previously 19 or 21 valve that need to have a root enlargement done. I think that you need to become an aortic valve specialist, not just a surgeon aortic valve specialist. You need to be able to do both. And at that point, it won't matter to you whether you're doing a transfemoral or an open. You know how to do the whole disease. Be a disease specialist. And that's really where I think surgeons need to migrate to. So with that, uh, we now have transcatheter aortic valves. There are transcatheter uh, pulmonic valve replacements. There's been some work with especially transcatheter mitral repair and replacement options. Where do you see the future of, of transcatheter mitral surgery going? So that, I think, has been behind. Even though transcatheter mitral valve repair, the mitral clip, was developed and used in humans before transcatheter aortic valve, before TAVR, it hasn't developed as fast because of a multitude of reasons. Having said that, there are now three early feasibility trials where um, we, at Emory, now we are very heavily getting into the transcatheter tricuspid and mitral valves. So we have now done transeptal mitral valve replacements in de novo MR. We've now done transapical mitral valve replacements in de novo, uh, de novo MR. Uh, we've now, at Emory, I think a total we've done five of these patients. And so we've now done three transcatheter tricuspid valve repairs in early feasibility trials. So. The way, again, I think we should do it, and my, the way my practice is set up is I can do an open mitral valve, I can do a minimally invasive mitral valve, I can do a 
trans uh, a mitral clip, which is through the femoral vein. I can do a trans um, uh, femoral mitral valve replacement and a trans apical mitral valve replacement. So I think that we have to be able to say we're a valve specialist, and when you come to us, we can do any of these five operations for your mitral valve, and that's why we are poised the best to be able to take care of you. So, you know, it's a time for, I think the residents listening to this, it's a time for you to think radically about how do you want to practice, not in 2017, not in 2018, but in, in five to 10 years from now. And you need to plan for that now, just like some of us did back in 2006, and we're paying for the fruits of that now. So what do you say as well to residents who are interested in device development, partnering with industry in a conflict-free way, uh, now with so much emphasis on conflict of interest and, and whatnot, um, to develop devices for the future? So I think that's a really tough thing to do. Uh, so you have to really partner with an engineer and it takes resources to do that. So monetarily, it's tough to do. Um, back in 2009 and 10, I, I was on a PhD thesis committee for an engineer at Georgia Tech and I actually hired him afterwards because after he finished his PhD. So you have to partner with engineers to be able to do that. And you have to figure out the resources. The best thing is if you have these ideas, uh, you have to articulate them, get the whole patents done. Since most of you will be in a university setting, you have to go through the university. It can't be done on your own. Um, and so there are people that help you with that. Myself, a guy named Dr. Acklog, Leishon Acklog has now quit cardiac surgery, lives in New York because of the, um, the, the, the devices that he created. So there are great examples of people who have done this and we just, you have to reach out to them. I think going on and on your own is a really bad idea. Okay. Well, <clears throat> that's been a interesting look at the development and history of transcatheter aortic valve uh, replacement um, and uh, really appreciate your time in discussing this topic. Thank you so much for asking me to do this, Josh.